It's with great pleasure that I now introduce our first plenary speaker this morning. Professor Galton held the first ever chair in peace studies in Oslo from 1969. He's held numerous visiting professorships. He's a prolific researcher. Some of his books are on sale. I do encourage you to look at them in the Garden Quad reception room and are available to buy here. And above all, he now spends much of his time as a practical mediator, so he is a scholar, practitioner. He is a facilitator of solutions. He's made several previous trips, he tells me, to Oxford to herald the dawn of peace studies in Oxford. Let this not be a false storm. Let us continue from this day and let us see it happen. So, Professor Garton, thank you very much for being with us, and I hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much indeed, Liz, and congratulations on this beautifully organized conference on a wonderful spring day in Oxford, which may eventually become an elite university when it has peace studies. <laughs> I just turn it around a little bit with your permission. Sisters and brothers, I have been called quite often father of peace studies. It must be great-grandfather by now, so I'm looking at the number of children and grandchildren kind of thing. But it was rather lonely when we started back in 51, 59. It was quite lovely. It's an incredible amount of progress that has been made. Scylla made a review of some very important advances. And what I'm going to do now is to try to use the abolition of slavery, the abolition of colonialism, the way in which patriarchy is being abolished, the way in which racism is fading out, the way in which class has been handled, had to make that bear upon abolition of war. Let me first make very clear that when I say abolition of slavery, I mean abolition of the legitimation of slavery. I'm not saying that we don't find slavery today, nor am I saying that we don't find colonialism. But it has to be hidden more. It has to operate under other pretexts and names, quite often. That is already an enormous step forward. And it is the delegitimation, the deinstitutionalization of war I'm interested in. So I'd like to start by sharing with you <coughs> ten findings from the comparative study that I've been engaged in of abolition of slavery, colonialism, patriarchy and a couple of the others. The ten findings take as their point of departure that we are dealing with structures. We are dealing with structural violence, which usually has a prehistory of abominable direct violence and very often ends with direct violence. In the meantime, there is an enormous exploitation, repression, alienation going on. So finding number one has a certain air of the trivial. The top will never abolish itself alone. It has to be struggled. We in this room will probably advocate non-violent struggle. 
mainly. But you should not expect the top to degrade itself. The top is sitting quite well on others. And when others that are being set upon have a tendency to move because it's an inconvenient position in which to be, the top will shout, you see, he's moving, aggression. And the first move is then used for the definition of aggression. This is what I try to abolish through the concept of structural violence. And it has been my 50 years experience that that concept has traveled quite well around the world. Now, number two is the opposite of that point. The abolition never comes from the bottom alone. It has to hit on to enlightened element higher up. And these enlightened elements very often are women. Very, very often. I have a friend in Sweden, and for Norwegian to say that he has a friend in Sweden already shows an enormous amount of tolerance. It costs much, but I have a friend in Sweden. And she says about men, she is a specialist on hormone biology, that the dangerous period for men is between 12 and 65. <laughs> but after 65, men become almost human. She made that at a speech at my 65th anniversary, so I can just say. So this is for encouragement. I think the role of women in abolition of slavery. I'm thinking of Harriet Beecher Stowe. The role of women in Greenham Common. The role of the women associated with Gandhi in England in Orbs. And I'm coming to that because it has to be bolstered with a little element of theory. Point number three. It may be difficult to attack the key element of the structure directly, which is sheer exploitation and repression. And starting with consciousness formation and organization. The spreading of consciousness will then have a moral character. I know nobody who has done that so well relative to nuclear weapons as the American Catholic Church and the United Methodists in their two remarkable booklets of 1983. And the basic message was not about nuclear weapons. The authors knew nothing about nuclear weapons. I was in a debate with the author of the Catholic book, Bishop of Oakland, Diocese, <coughs> and he said, of course I know nothing about nuclear weapons, but I know much about God. Now, for a pagan like me with Buddhist spots, I, I leave that issue aside. <laughs> Let me just leave it aside. Because he said something very beautiful. God did not create us in order to convert each other into radioactive ashes. He created us as an act of love for us to love each other. I find that beautiful. It can be said in very many ways. The Catholics and the United Methodists said it beautifully. The Presbyterians hired me because they wanted to have my advice about how to enter with a similar booklet. 
But it turned out that the Presbyterians USA and the US Presbyterian Church were at odds in such a way that I had to say, maybe you start with yourselves. <laughs> that one was a tough one. The Cold War was a minor one relative to that. Now, having said that, I am in a terrain that we all know. We know that humanity is not easy, and humanity has its fault lines. So I said the point three, the consciousness formation, and it will have a modern touch to it. It will be spiritual. I have a book here, I'll be peddling books a couple of times. It's called Globalizing God. And the subtitle is Religion, Spirituality and Peace. I find spirituality a very bridging concept. Between the religions of the East, Buddhism, and you can add Confucianism and Taoism, and the religions of the West that see themselves as monotheistic, although I find them often Trinitarian and Quaternitarian. But leaving all that aside, spirituality, we gain to something out there with something in here, a spark that touches our heart. But you have to apply a little bit of brain to it too. So it's heart and brain hand in hand. Now point four, one way of doing that is to practice vision of transformation. I remember a little place called Americas in Georgia. They were practicing whites and blacks living together, running a farm together in the most segregated of territories. And if you read the book by Professor Fisher at Brandeis University on Albion Seed, he distinguishes between four groups of English who went to the New World. Devonshire, and they went to Virginia. And they were rich people, wanted to become richer by means of gold. Then you have from East Anglia, via Leiden, you have the Puritans. Then you have in the Bradford community, the Quakers. And they went to Pennsylvania and became a very decent ingredient component up till these days. And the last part was the border, the English-Scottish-Irish border riffraff. I'm quoting him. I would never use such a word. But they went, and the Piedmont was taken by the time they arrived, so they went down the Appalachians and down the river and became very vicious indeed. In America's Georgia, they practiced white and black together. And they were rewarded by shooting at night by AK-47 through the windows, just about 10 centimeters above the heads of the children sleeping and things of that kind. But the practice was important. And what they in the southern United States were most upset about was not words, but it was black and white walking hand in hand. In other words, the practice is important. We have 30 countries in the world without armies. It's very important. Maybe the least important is Costa Rica, excuse me for saying so, because its militia is a little bit big. Slightly big, I would say. 
So it's a question of watching out that it is not a semantic transfer. Point five, unlimited perseverance. These things are not obtained easily. You are fighting uphill against very difficult structures. And that perseverance will go from generation to generation. Point six, for heaven's sake, do not demand synchronicity. Do not demand abolition of slavery in all countries at the same time. The very basic principle here is one leading country, showing the example. The word elite comes up, the elite country is important. And England has a couple of things to its honor that I'm coming to. You will notice that I never use the word Britain. The reason I don't use it is that I don't want to make the Scottish accomplishes all the English crimes. And uh, for that reason I leave it like that. I know perfectly well that people with Scottish accent have contributed quite a lot for themselves. But I'll leave even that issue as well. Now, point seven. Multilateral summit meetings of those at the top will generally lead to nothing. A very good example is the climate change. I'm very much opposed to the Kyoto approach. The approach that I love will be countries showing the lead. You may be in the interesting situation now that the name of that country will be China. It doesn't have a good press in the West that may say more about Western journalists than about reality. I'm open for discussion of that point. To believe that a multilateral conference of people with nuclear weapons will abolish nuclear weapons makes me issue certificates of naivete. <laughs> nuclear weapons are not military weapons. They are the ultimate defense of a civilization in the name of their god and punishment in the name of that god like punishing Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, after Japan had capitulated, and then inventing the lie about saving Yankee lives afterwards. I met it to a Japanese, I talk with some passion about this, and I'm very available for discussion. You see, the point about it is this, let me not do it. But one country could show the lead. The biggest country is the US, the country that could show the lead would be the mother country. There is still some respect for mom in the United States of America. And the stance that the UK had in connection with slave trade was important. It had moral reverberations. I don't go into detail about that. I have said what I have to say about multilateralism, and you will understand that I'm a unilateralist. But it has to be backed, and that is point eight and point nine. It has to be backed with heavy politics. Social movements are indispensable, but sooner or later the banner has also to be carried by heavy politics. It will find its way. Nobody has said it so well as Arthur Schopenhauer when somebody has a new idea. 
The immediate reaction is laughter. It's the most ridiculous I ever heard. And the second reaction is suspicion. What's he after? Power? This Monet Schumann suggesting that Germany should become a member of the family with the Nazis. And the third stage is a heavy politician who stands up and says, it has always been my idea. <laughs> I have experienced that a couple of times. I have a couple of mediations that have been carried out, 100 of them, 20 of them, not unsuccessful. But let me remind you that in a world which is dialectic, success may turn into failure, and failure into success. Such is reality. The synergy between the moral imperative, the heavy movements and heavy politics, knowledge-based vision, training, doing it, small example, cases, transformation, is what makes it. And then comes point 10, which is the shadowy point. At what cost? What's the price? Slave trade, United Kingdom, since 1801, 1st of January, 1800, if you will. Played a role, no doubt about it. And I'm reminded of a story, I think it was an uncle and a nephew, slave traders in Liverpool. The nephew says to uncle, uncle, I really am worried about what we are doing. You know, these are human beings and uh, we are treating them abominably. They die. And the uncle said, my dear nephew, when I was your age, I also used to think like that. And I'm happy to hear you have those thoughts. But I've come to realize <coughs> that slaves have to be bought and they have to be sold. And if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. Now, that logic you've heard a couple of times. It's an unbreakable logic. It's the logic of a snake swallowing its tail. Sooner or later one breaks out of that logic. But how does one do it? Well, the way England did it was by exploiting black labor and plantations in Africa instead, thereby saving the shipping expenses, opportunity costs considerably reduced, and doing it in situ. Colonialism. Is there a price of that kind? Slavery abolished that was the right, legitimized, to be the owner of a person, persons in plural, families, using slaves, putting two of them together of opposite gender to produce more slaves. The step from that one to owning a whole country, a whole people, its land, its air, its resources, was surprisingly short. In other words, could it be that when we abolish an evil, the others are standing line. They are standing there behind the door and history saying, wait, now your time has come. So what would be if you abolish war? What would be standing in line? Well, let's first look at reality here a little bit. We have abolished war. It's Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. 
but there are three exceptions in 50 and 51 and generally before that in the 40s, in the lower 40s except in defense in collective defense and if the security council so ordains well that opens for a lot because you may say of course that my defense line is in Hindukush and the US military doctrine has been to fight the enemy where he is and don't give him access to the homeland. You have a conflict formation and it descends in an arena handpicked by yourself. But first you have to tell the public that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and you have to spend some time finding them and you find nothing. And you have to tell the public that 9-11 was planned in caves in Afghanistan, there are many caves by the way, and you have to, you know, rummage all of them and you find nothing. It is just a lie, like the others. But in the meantime, you have made gullible people believe it. In other words, you have the escape clauses. The most important one I have not mentioned. In Article 2.4, it says member states do not go to war against each other. Member states. How about non-states? How about privatizing the army? like you can find in Alexandria, Virginia. How about privatizing it? Using Admiral General R.E.T. retired. You usually know more than the young chaps just up the West Point with no experience. In other words, it's a tricky business. Establish a movement to abolish patriarchy. And as the Swedish sociologist, again I'm very complimentary about Sweden, Jordan Tarnbaum has pointed out in his fantastic study of family systems. The family system that is now being defeated is patriarchy. All over the world. It's a bad time for us patriarchs. It's not what it used to be. Not what it used to be. What is standing in line? Well, it could be an alliance of middle-aged, emancipated women with men in order to pre-pension elderly people. Could be, you know, sign that they stand in the way. And put them in ghettos called old age homes, and the first the ghetto is called retirement. And just like research means to search again and again and again, retirement means to be tired again and again and again. <laughs> Until finally you're decent enough to die off without costing the state too much money. I have seen those middle-aged alliances shaping up and approaching 80 and gets a little bit more sensitive to it, I just mentioned. In other words, you have lots of contradictions in humanity. And yet now, let me come to a basic point. Why do I mention women? Well, I mentioned English women where the language has been important. What I have to say is not in any way limited to that. But there has been a spirit emanating from it. And I found particularly useful women who are middle-aged, middle-sexed, middle-class, middle-town, Middle, relation, middle religion and middle politics. Let me start by middle-aged. There has to be a certain accumulation of experience. And the perseverance calls for much physical energy. 
But then I have middle age started at 25. Why do I say 25? Because at that point the psychological gestalt is often closed. The people who are able to call their gestalt open and be sensitive to new ideas and new learning, who are omnivorous when it comes to what they read and experience, are the people we call them. Now, if you promise never to retire, if you promise that, you will not be tired again and again, and you will be middle-aged way into your 80s and 90s. I have predicted the end of the U.S. empire before 2020, and in this book it's made very precise, 24th of October 2020. Now, why the 24th of October? Because it's the UN day, and it happens to be my 90th anniversary. <laughs> so you're all invited to the party to celebrate. I'm not saying it couldn't happen before. It goes quickly these days. The question is what comes in its place. Middle sexed means being neither macho nor excessively feminine in the classical sense of a narcissistic concern with their own beauty, painting your face three hours a day, and the remaining hours in the gym in order to trim off two ounces or something. It's not the way. Not the way. Narcissism is not the way. You will pardon me for also mentioning that there are some men who might join women in compassion. Gilligan's point. And there are quite a lot of women who do not join in compassion, except with their own beauty. I'm shocked by watching television and seeing how much of it is dedicated to that. Just unbelievable. Middle class. The upper class derives its upperness, its uppityness from the nation state where they are upper class and have a tendency to come to its defense. The lower classes see the nation state as their battlefield and will have difficulties globalizing their concern as sparks would have said, and he'd been alive today. Middle town, I generally do not expect much to come from the capital city of the country. It comes from small towns like Oxford, Bradford. It comes from a group in Wales, Welsh women for saving life on earth and their significance in Greenham Common, the RAF base, in 1981. If you go to the extreme periphery, life is very, very fragile. If you go to the capital, you are surrounded by too many monuments to the grandeur of your country. I would almost never expect anything from Paris, where 95% of the street names are males. 95% of those males are warriors, politicians, or some intellectuals. As a matter of fact, a businessman has to buy a street in order to get his name on it. Now, if you grow up in that environment, what seeps into you is a certain view of the world. And the capital city is often very rich in it. 
and said, middle religion, not too hard. There are hard versions of all religions and there are soft, peaceable versions. But it could be so soft that it dissipates into nothing. There has to be a spiritual content. The difference between a Torquemado and a Francesco d'Assisi is the extreme, if you will, in Christianity. In, this, in Christianity, from an English point of view, the soft Christianity is called Quakerism. And the first conscientious objector, George Fox, was a person who inspired me immensely when I took that decision. You can say, if I may make a quip sitting next to the Anglican Church, <laughs> that I have never quite understood that church, and I'm sure this will enlighten me. I know, God save of a gracious queen, but I have a feeling there is an element of queen saves of a gracious God. And that the Anglican Church is also a way of drinking tea, and it's profoundly Anglican. Not all religions are named after the country. As a matter of fact, it's rather rare. And having said that, the light emanating from Coventry sometimes has been fantastically inspiring. And the light emanating from that church has been very important. CND, terribly important. Maybe that Anglican Church is exactly somewhere between the extreme hard and the extreme soft. Maybe that's it. So I'm sure this will pardon me for my quips, having said this other point. Middle politics. We are plagued by a parliamentary democratic system that is still structured by 19th century discourse. It's the relative role of state and capital in running the economy, which is dominating. And have a pendulum swing along that very simplified discourse. And if the period is long enough, the next government can abolish what the other government did, so they just have time enough to cancel each other. I found that not a hung parliament, but hung parliamentarism. For that reason, I celebrate the coalition. And I would just hope that Cameron's idea that the nuclear issue is not to be touched, nor this transatlantic relations, will mature to a more mature view as the five years are marching on. A coalition is a formula for middle politics. If they are able to transcend, if they're able to say, you have a good idea, I have a good idea, okay, I take your nonsense if you take mine. And go beyond that, let us say, what is the idea that accommodates both of us? And we could both feel at ease. Let us say that you take capitalism and socialism. The idea of social capitalism or social democracy was such a bridging idea. And you find it with a little range of radiation all through Western Europe, except for the interval produced by the Thatcher-Reagan revolution of 1985 
I think that was exactly an interlude. So having said that, we have carriers, and important carriers, and now comes the final point. War is a tenacious structure. We used to see it as a war between two governments, using their people, conscripted or not, to kill each other. That's one view of it. You can also see economics as the competition between two companies with their workers, mobilizing their people to capture innocent bystanders called clients, customers. And they capture them with all kinds of guerrilla sneaky means called marketing and things of that kind. And they sneak in on them by marketing studies, having interviews and all that stuff that social sciences sometimes are guilty of participating in. That's one view. That's the actor-oriented view. The structure-oriented view would look at the cooperation between the companies in maintaining the system and see it as a joint alliance to maintain the system. A joint alliance carried by the local Rotary Club, incidentally. And members of Rotary Clubs usually do not kill each other because they know how important they are in maintaining the system. Now, Marx called attention to this, and I'm in no way ruling out the liberal view of companies competing with each other. I would argue in favor of the both and of the liberal and the Marxist view. What will correspond to the Marxist view for war is the cooperation between countries in maintaining the war system. And that was the hidden study between 1918. There were strikes, both of French and German soldiers. They were playing chess when they were not killing each other. They were entrenched in the trenches and they reached out in ways that Silla was describing yesterday to each other. The capitulation was, formally speaking, Germany capitulating to France. And what the revenge Chateaubriand, all these Clemenceau and all these people took, including Lord George, was the revenge for that. Building, of course, laying the basis for the Second World War very cleverly. They managed to stop the war just in time for something worse than capitulation, namely the end of the war system. Now, this hidden history has been brought to life by some people. You can argue it wasn't that close, and it probably wasn't. You can say that conscientious objection is a way of emptying it, and it is not unsuccessful. In Germany and Italy, the majority of young conscripts are conscientious objectors. In Japan, it would have been if that had conscription. There is a logic to nations that were defeated being against the war system. And they also those who have most peace museums. Many of them. You find the war museums in the belligerent, victorious country. Now, this is important. They are organizing a big conference now about civilian service as a substitute. And Silla made a lot of examples of what they could do. I can give a lot of examples. 
mediation conflict, solving the conflict. So this book has 100 cases of that. The point about it is that one can do it. If you take the helicopter sweep intellectual and you see the conflict from above, and you say, look, he has a good point too, and you have a good point, but you have a couple of bad points. How about collecting all the good points and make a new reality out of those points? You can train people to think that way. It's a little bit more difficult with Anglo-Americans high up. The level of self-righteousness makes them think that their views are universal. Now, when your limited view is universal, you are on the wrong track. And you need a solid exposure to Mr. Talib, Miss Al-Qaeda, and so on. I stop at that point. I wish Liz and the conference enormous success. And when she has been appointed Professor of Peace Studies in Oxford, I am convinced that she will mobilize very easily the middle-aged, middle-sex, middle-class, middle-town, middle-religious, and middle-politics. Sisters and brothers, we are the majority. Thank you.